I'm Mark Peterson, and this is Before, During, and After, a podcast from FEMA. FEMA's Office of Disability Integration and Coordination serves to ensure our commitment to equity and inclusion for people with disabilities before, during, and after disasters. Recently, FEMA Administrator Deanne Criswell announced our newest director of the office, Sherman Gillums Jr. On this episode, we explore his first 100 days during which he has covered a lot of ground, from supporting disasters almost immediately upon coming on board to lending support to our program offices as they work to improve our delivery of services. We'll talk about that and what the future holds for the Office of Disability Integration and Coordination. So FEMA's Office of Disability Integration Coordination, I mean, for me, the importance of this uh, office just really cannot be understated. It really has the potential to affect so much change in the way that we deliver our programs at FEMA in response to disasters, but also raise awareness for how the emergency management community is engaging with people with disabilities and and how we can uh, make the disaster response and recovery process more effective. And so to talk about the office and to welcome him to FEMA after his first 100 days, uh, we have Sherman Gillums, Jr. Thank you so much, uh, Mr. Director of the Office of Disability Integration Coordination. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really excited about this conversation. I, I, I know that you have a, a really impressive story, but also a passion for the work that you're going to be doing here in this office. So before we get going, why don't you tell us just a little bit about the mission of the Office of Disability Integration Coordination and, and what you're trying to achieve? I think it's worth uh, mentioning from the start that I am a person who navigates life in a wheelchair. So for the last 20 years since leaving the Marine Corps in 2002, um, I see life through the lens of of people whose enablement comes from wheelchairs. Uh, in some cases, it's hearing aids, American Sign Language. So I live that life, and I don't think I've ever considered it a disability. It's it's really just a different way of of functioning normally. Um, and so I bring that mindset into the disaster space. When I think about what it takes for a person who is either in my position or or similarly situated, uh, meaning that they need certain things for their independence, um, that becomes the point of entry for any discussion I have on disaster response. And, and ultimately, if I'm doing my job, we will shorten the disaster life cycle for people whose independence is achieved by assistive aids and services, yet they're the ones who often find themselves living with the consequences of a disaster uh, because they've been disenabled by an environment that doesn't always see them and their needs. And so when that happens, um, you see things like institutionalization that could have been preempted. You see things like worsened health outcomes because someone didn't have their medications in a shelter that then exacerbated, uh, you know, what, what the experience, um, and uh, and then finally markedly decreased independence. Um, that's uh, you know that's the outcome we don't have to accept because there are ways we can prevent that. So I want to work with my partners at every level to ensure that we know enough to do what we can to prevent that. So is that when you are working um, uh, amongst the FEMA programs? Uh, 
are all of those things coming to mind as you're, uh, you know, kind of evaluating how the programs are providing access? You know, what are the conversations like that you're having? That's a great question because it speaks to uh, the pivot that I seek to make uh, with this office. It's not this office's job to make everything disability friendly. It's our job to provide every single program office with some aspect of their mission that sees persons that they can help through that mission who may have needs that differ from most survivors. So when I talk to the individual assistance program and the uh, public assistance program and all the other parts of FEMA, uh, I feel like I am I am essentially helping them see their job differently through through the eyes of people who will benefit from their work, provided that those folks making the decision understand what has to happen so that when you when you when you give benefits to people, um, they have to be accessible to everyone to, to work. When you put them in housing, some of the housing has to be accessible. And, and knowing what that requires, uh, I, I think it's my role to ensure that the leaders are given the benefit of of having that understanding and that and and the business case for why it's a good thing to do it. Um, that makes their job easier because then they suffer uh, less you know, bad press, if you will, or they, they they don't have the problem surface because they didn't see or didn't know something. So it's my job to, you know, avert the harm before it happens across all program areas is a good way to sum it up. You know, you, you hit on this a little bit, um, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how disasters actually disproportionately impact people with disabilities. Sort of set the stage there. Sure. When you think about what happens in a disaster, it usually involves displacement, property loss or damage, health effects, and every survivor goes through that. Every single one of them is going to experience that. So it's pretty, you know, we, we I, there's a there's a quote I heard about the uh, disasters don't discriminate, right? They don't discriminate. They're going to treat us all equally. Um, but what happens when a person bears the added expense of having to replace a wheelchair or place a ramp that has to be uh, part of a rebuilt or, or a new home these essentially become a sort of disability tax one has to pay for having disability because a lot of these aren't optional items. And when when finances are constrained and you have to replace either a microwave, refrigerator, or a wheelchair, they're all essential, but some things become more essential than others, but not everybody has to bear uh, you know, bear the cost of that. And so we we think that you know, equity, what equity means is not, it's not that we're all going to be similarly situated at every moment, but there are things that through equity at least gets us to a point where we all have that same level of that same opportunity to recover. Um, and sometimes it may, it may require uh, additional thought applied to what happens when you don't have transportation or you don't have permanent housing options that that are conducive to your success, to your independence, those are where the costs are borne by people who have disabilities. And then the consequences, again, become a lot longer after a disaster when you when you can't afford those costs. And, and so that's where the disproportionality begins to take effect. You know, we've talked uh, a lot on the podcast about um, our strategic goals and for good reason. They are they're really ambitious and and they're really um, really seeking to make a, a major change in emergency management. And, and one, I think more than anything is about instilling equity into emergency management. So I wonder, um, you know, what's the office doing to to really support that goal? Well, we hear the term disaster response, right? that's that's part of what we do. It's part of our identity. 
but there's a key word in that term, response, which means react, right? We react to a disaster. We have to respond to a disaster. The problem for uh, our mission, the disability integration mission, is uh, it begins before a disaster happens, right? Equity is a constant priority for people who achieve their independence through assistive aids and services. So we're talking about things like automatic doors, touchless faucets, audio books, voice, voice control lights and all that stuff that they're creature comforts for most people, but for people with uh, disabilities, it represents autonomy and freedom. But those things get wiped away during a disaster. And so people, again, find themselves disenabled, not disabled, but disenabled when forced into an emergency shelter or a disaster recovery center to get services. And what my office uh, seeks to do is to work hard to uh, make sure that community resiliency includes a, a, uh, an environment that's universally designed for everyone to be successful before and after disaster, particularly before because we're finding uh, shelters um, and, and places where they have to meet accessibility standards in order to work but they have to have that before disaster strikes, right? All over Florida, you have to have these places built for that mission. Um, and so a lot of our work starts with thinking about what happens before a disaster that makes it more likely that someone with a disability will get through it. And, uh, and a lot of that involves making sure that communities think about this stuff before a disaster strikes. So I think the equity mission for us is about, again, averting harm, averting the inequality and inequity by having relationships at the state and local levels with the tribal territories so that we can talk through this um, in a proactive sense instead of a reactive one. So Sherman, you know, the program, individual assistance, um, you know, it is a cumbersome process for disaster survivors at times to navigate through, but we've made some really big improvements uh, in seeking to address the post-disaster needs of people with disabilities. Tell us about, you know, sort of those improvements and the additional funding that might be available for disaster survivors. And then also, you know, given that those improvements have been made, where do we still need to go? Well, I think it was remarkable when the agency raised the cap for survivors who have to, you know, who apply for benefits due to a loss of property loss and allow for the additional uh, benefit to cover losses that relate to disability equipment. Um, again, these are damaged wheelchairs. I kind of alluded to some of the disproportion earlier in terms of impact, but but that benefit, it did something very important. It, it doesn't seek to make you whole necessarily, but it does at least attempt to put every survivor in that's similarly situated in a disaster at a level where they have an opportunity to be made whole. There's that opportunity to be made whole. And when you replace a wheelchair or when the added expenses of a of a wheelchair, of ramps, of, of drivers, hand controls, things like that, don't eat into the other essentials, then I think that's the best shot at, at being made whole that, that all of us should expect when we uh, reach out to FEMA as a survivor. So that benefit, um, first of all, it recognized that there are differences and people are differently situated. And, and I think by having that cap lifted for people who have to replace things like disability equipment and, and, and durable medical equipment, it was remarkable. It was remarkable. So I, I commend the agency for that. I think in terms of what we can continue to do is continue to refine our understanding of what the needs are and how they differ. We look at the application process. We want to make sure that when people read those questions that they're, they're being answered um, 
uh, you know, within the context of, of what the question intended, not, you know, misunderstanding uh, that, that may result in a denial. Um, I think one of the biggest opportunities we've we've done well, and this came up during Hurricane Ian, uh, it was a focus on keeping families together during disaster response. People with disabilities don't just simply focus on their their physical situation or or the limitations. They also focus on staying connected to their families, caregivers, the service animals. Uh, I would hear the daily reports at the uh, NRCC, and one of the metrics was how many service animals and family pets did we also save? That's that's telling me we see human beings. They're not data points. Um, they're not just quote unquote survivors, but they're actual human beings who have relationships that if we can keep them together during the disaster, they're going to get through it a lot easier. So I was very happy to hear about uh, but that, that one little data point, how many pets did we save this time? Um, and so we're working with communities and stakeholders to ensure that we better understand the challenges and again, refine our understanding of what it means to be prepared for the worst and get through the worst when it happens. Um, and I think the only challenge is ensuring people don't take this lightly and making communities more resilient ahead of a disaster. Yeah, uh, that's a that's a great point. Because um, the next question I was really thinking about in my mind is we've talked a lot about the disaster and the post disaster, where the, maybe the immediate uh, post disaster and then eventual recovery, uh, building back. Um, but there's a lot that needs to be thought through in terms of preparing for uh, disasters. So, you know what what do we still need to do to help people with disabilities and their families and caregivers do to prepare? The first thing and probably the most important thing we can do is include people who best know their needs in the disaster planning process, which starts with fostering meaningful relationships with organizations and communities that take an interest in opening access to everyone. Um, you know, we want to create a society that's accessible in the first place so that schools, churches and public buildings that become shelters and recovery centers don't have to be made accessible because we understood that to be important even before a disaster happened. And I think having people at the table who can speak to their needs is, uh, again, not only does it recognize their existence, but it also puts us in a better position to help more survivors get through it. Um, they become more autonomous, more independent, more self-determined uh, when they're when they're enabled um, by things like universal design, right? When people hear universal design, it's, they, they kind of hear disabled design in their mind. But universal design benefits all of us. Those moving sidewalks in, in airports, those automatic doors at hotels, you know, I tell people, if you can walk, you're welcome, right? Because a lot of that happened because people were able to vocalize their needs and, uh, and it made life better for all of us. So what we can do to help people with disasters during uh, emergencies or help them prepare at least is to have them at the table to speak to those needs because ultimately they end up benefiting a lot more people than those who who had voiced the initial uh, need. Oh, I love the way you put that. I mean, and and put it in perspective, frankly, uh, because I think so many times when we talk about preparedness, we're thinking about those kits and sort of getting ready as an individual for that. But I mean, you make that point so well that it's really about communities thinking through what needs to happen. So you have you joined FEMA in summer of 2022 and have already celebrated your first hundred days. And I'm I'm sorry that this is the first time that we're able to sit down and talk through this because you've hit a lot of milestones. Can you t tell me about what you've done over the first hundred days? Well, we didn't have a lot of time because I was welcomed uh, with the Kentucky flood, right? And I thought maybe that's as bad as it gets, but 
It was followed shortly after by uh, hurricanes Fiona and Ian. Um, let's see, there was also Typhoon Murbach, Tropical Storm Nicole. I mean, it wasn't letting up. So I didn't have a lot of time uh, to do a lot of this, um, except it was important in certain moments to make sure that our message was getting out as these things were happening because we were testing a lot of initiatives. You know, you hear me talk later on um, uh, or next year, a lot of next year, I'll talk about the equity blueprint and our and our disability integration risk profile system that we set up and tested during the, the two hurricanes, one in Puerto Rico and the other in Florida, because we had the opportunity to do that. But I thought it was important for us to begin to innovate immediately around a lot of um, a lot of the things that were happening. Um, but my team did a lot of things. We held two national level stakeholder webinars and three listening sessions. Um, we are now part of a state-based access and functional needs coalition in Colorado. Um, I presented our equity blueprint at the annual um, NEMA forum, the National Emergency Managers Association forum, and the IAEM Summit, the International Association of Emergency Managers, where we talked about these concepts through a disability integration lens. Um, if you saw me in, in September on the website, we did a, a, a series of uh, PSAs, public service announcements. Uh, we did an op-ed, blog post, and interviews to make sure, again, that people were putting uh, survivors with access and functional needs top of mind. But the, I think the the biggest the thing that'll be most memorable in my first 100 days, uh, probably two things. One, I got to go to Gallaudet University and we did a guest lecture uh, with uh, some of our regional partners with uh, students who are in a graduate program that focused on emergency management and the role that they can play. Gallaudet is a, um, it's a, a, a nationally renowned school, a hub for students who are deaf and, and they find their identity and their purpose through the education that they're given there. And a lot of those students um, saw themselves in the in the disability integration mission that FEMA has because of their handle on American Sign Language. We need a lot of that. We need a lot more people doing that stuff. And I think we were able to excite a number of them. Uh, but the other thing was uh, being able to go to Florida, uh, Lee County and uh, Puerto Rico, uh, the Ponce municipality, and actually be in the, in the disaster space with survivors and Again, I'm in a wheelchair, so I'm rolling through, you know, sort of testing the the uh, the infrastructure and and looking. But I got to talk to people and ask them questions like, you know, what made you evacuate? Um, you know, how are you feeling right now? What are the types of things that you worry about most? Just having, you know, remembering that they're human beings who suffer tremendous loss, not survivors who are data points in a in a graph somewhere. And and because they gave me the the benefit of their insights in that moment, it was a gift because it gave me a better understanding of of the role we can play in their lives. Um, and they didn't have to talk to me. They didn't have to tell me those things. Those were these are tough situations to see people go through. Um, but but I consider it a gift because the more we can learn from the past, you know, I, I've said to my staff many times, we don't get do overs. We only get do betters. Um, but that's how we do better by, by learning from survivors and hearing their experiences and then finding a way to apply that forward. One of the things you mentioned amongst many things, uh, was that disability risk profile. Is that what you called yes. it? Yes. I, I haven't heard that before. Um, I'm, I'm really, I'm curious. What, tell me a little bit about that. Well, one of the things I was fortunate to inherit was a, uh, disability integration, um, data dashboard. It, it basically takes 
data from the Social Security Administration, the U.S. Census, uh, Empower Data, uh, which is uh, are all the people whose lives are uh, linked to energy. So if you if you're on dialysis or you have oxygen dependency, those databases, as well as past IA applications, people who have been in disasters before, and, and when the same areas hit, they'll probably need it again. And so we triangulate all that data. Now that's fine if it's just it's it, it was sitting there as data, and it was great because you could you could look at that and 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 extrapolate from that a lot of things. But we added the element of interpretation. And so right before Hurricane Ian hit, we could begin to look at where the storm, the eye of the storm, was likely to hit. How many people are in that area that have energy dependence, you know, dialysis. Again, we did the same thing in Puerto Rico, by the way. Um, and then begin to advise our regional partners and state emergency managers and folks, even urban search and rescue. This is where we need to look. This is where, and, and if you've got shelters in this area, you've got a, a sizable population of people who report being deaf or hard of hearing. So we want to make sure that in those shelters, we are looking at putting resources that are going to help them communicate quickly so that their needs are met quickly. Um, and again, we were testing it because it hadn't been done before, but but again, the occasion uh, became ripe for uh, testing only because the disasters were here. And I wanted to do more with the data than to sort of just observe it. I wanted to actually put it to use and then push it down, push it out to whoever might be able to be able to use it. So, um, so that, that risk profile sort of system, if you will, because it became something that we had to hab habituate into our response, we could now pre-plan, right? We didn't have to wait for a disaster to hit. We can now pre-plan and think through all the things like what happens during a blackout, where you're gonna have you know, 10,000 people who need this, urban search and rescue, uh, uh, this is where you need to look. We need to look for people. And then we, and then what I was able to do after doing that is go into the, again, the crisis space and look at the data in three dimension. So instead of seeing data points now and numbers, I was able to take what I knew about the data and then go to those areas, go to Lee County, Sanibel Island, and look at the damage and look at all the things and begin to give it more dimension. Um, so it's a work in progress, but it was one of our um, most opportune and, and um, proudest achievements because I, I think, I, I can't prove it, you know, but I think we save lives when we can be as proactive as we need to be um, so that people have information a lot sooner. And even when it's bad, there's something more we can do than just hope for the best. I mean, that's incredible. And it's also just yet another example of how data is influencing decision making uh, for the better in emergency management. And I'm just, I'm, I'm really, uh, you know, definitely interested in that, especially, you know, coming from the region, it, it's, it's something that I think we can all take and start implementing and thinking about how we can make our responses better. So thank you for that. But also, I, I'm just I'm struck by your passion about it, um, about about data and and is it something you feel like has really driven a tangible difference? Well, it does in life if you make use of it, right? You can you can make numbers scream anything if you torture them enough. Uh, that's that's the the downside of statistics and things like that. But when you have data. Um, and you can you can humanize the data, right? All we're doing is humanizing it. We're saying that th this is this is thirty thousand people who have this dialysis or oxygen dependent machine. A blackout's going to hit, and I am now taking myself into that experience. 
what message? I, I you know, we've got our uh, my, my Comsley Tracy. She and I sit and talk through what messaging becomes most relevant right now. You know, how do we talk people through this because we know what's happening now? Ordinarily, most focus is, is sort of macro. You're looking at the broader picture, the bigger storm. We're we're getting down. That's what equity is about: the individual and how that person, that messaging, can hit those people at the right time and their caregivers. Um, and data informs how we craft our messaging. Even if we can't do anything else, the one thing we can do is control what we say and how we can prepare people or at least give them the encouragement that this is not impossible to get through if you think through these things. And then as we're, you know, we, we monitor social media, we look at some of the things that are happening around certain areas and we'll see, okay, we've got a hospital over here that's damaged. They probably have a lot of patients that are have to be relocated. Let's put out some guidance on what you need to do to relocate your loved one from a nursing home to another facility, you know, finding finding out where you're going to get your prescriptions filled, something as simple as that, you know, plan ahead, you know, think about where grandma or grandpa are going to get their heart pills, or if they're in a shelter, how are they going to get their heart pills and all those things. So we're using data to, uh, you know, to, to, again, to see human beings at the end of it and thinking through ways we can, we can do something more than uh, wait passively or react to uh, bad news. I'd like to just switch gears here a little bit and uh, something you brought up early on in the conversation, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how your experience in the United States Marine Corps uh, has prepared you for, uh, for this role. I'd say that, um, first of all, as a leader, you get to make a lot of mistakes and learn the hard way. Uh, I, I joined the Corps at 17 and I was thrown into leadership pretty early. So a lot of the lessons of leadership, particularly under duress, um, you, you develop a, um, a, a knack for contingency thinking, contingency game planning. You know, you, you're never surprised by too much because you expect something to surprise you. And so you're better positioned to give people confidence that we can do this, we can get through it. It's not quite the same as going into battle, but a disaster is probably the next, you know, the next type of thing that, um, that someone can experience that's pretty profound uh, in terms of what humans endure um, and being able to adapt and overcome, lead by example, hold the team together. Um, those things become important in this work. But most importantly, I think training the way you fight, right? So we are going to go into 2023 with the expectation that we are going to do our tactical decision gaming as if it's happening real time and learn the lessons, learn where the breakdowns happen, learn how good of a team we are in real time so that by the time either next hurricane season happens or the unexpected happens, it could be anything, a terrorist attack, um, we are ready. And our confidence is gonna be in that we've seen this before. That's how Marines prepare for battle. It's, it's, it's scary, the bullets are real, uh, you know, bad things happen, uh, but there's something about your hard wiring when it's hardened for this, that begins to happen during practice, during during rehearsal, during drill. So um, I think the one thing I, I take into this experience from the Marine Corps is the importance of preparation, preparation, preparation until it becomes reflexive in your response. We've talked to um, a number of leaders uh, and individuals who are supporting emergency management um, offices around the country. And there is there is an, a natural nexus, it seems, um, from coming from the military over to emergency management. And, and often that's a, a great uh, source of recruitment for us. And so uh, 
you know, how can veterans help fellow veterans in their communities before, during, and after disasters, maybe even in an official role, but also in an unofficial role? Well, we say that disasters start locally and end locally. That means that in your community, um, there are people who have, again, they've been to combat, they have trained, they've done all the things that make them effective uh, under fire, if you will. Um, I don't think we tap that resource enough at the community level. Um, I, you know, veterans are going to be the first ones to say, hey, I'll do it. You know, or they're going to go into a, a situation just instinctively to help somebody out. But we have to build that expectation into people who are, are most prepared. And I think having veterans at the community level, maybe it's as, as, as simple as encouraging the discussion to begin in VA hospitals. You know, how are the VA hospitals uh, l looped into disaster response? I, I assume they are at some level, but uh, but but I don't know if it's it's if it's automatic or if it's if it's if there's an expectation that you're gonna have a lot of people who are probably disabled to some extent, but they're highly functional under under fire. And you pull especially disabled veterans. I happen to be one, but if you pull those folks in, um they're they're probably some of the most resourceful people. You can have in your community, and they'll and they'll tell you ways that uh, we could be more effective at taking care of each other at the community level. So I think, you know, I'm not saying we're going to deputize every veteran who who happens to live in a neighborhood, but if we if we make it make it our um, our priority to recognize that they have a something special to offer, and uh, and have discussions around that at the community level, I think you'll have more veterans seeing themselves in that response uh, response management space doing more because they're asked to do more. And, uh, and and sometimes all you have to do is ask. So I think having, you know, veterans ask veterans. This is me now asking my fellow veterans, if you live in Florida, which happens to have the highest concentration of veterans in the country, um, you, you have a role to play. It's not a passive role. You know, if you can take the lead in making sure that you're knocking on doors and if you know somebody's disabled, you know, sit down with that person and have them understand that they're important They're, you know, and you do see them and, and, and you're willing to go on and get them if they're willing to prepare. Um, that's another way we build relations with communities. As you think about the next hundred days, the next thousand days, what is it for you that is, is your top priority? My top priority over the next 100 days is to make the case for equity through a business lens, right? Make the case for equity through a survivor journey lens, right? One of the things we'll be talking about in the new year is the survivor journey. And we're actually gonna create a survivor journey map where we can indicate the 14 points of inequity in a typical survivor journey and how those points of inequity extend the disaster life cycle for those individuals. And if we can shrink those 14 points of inequity, the space that it takes to resolve that inequity, it'll have the cumulative effect of shortening the disaster life cycle. And there are costs that we can affix to that. There may not be cost to, to, the FEMA, to FEMA as an agency, but it's cost to taxpayers. There's a cost to systems. There's a cost to all those things that become cumulative. And, and we all bear it to an extent um, when something as simple as recognizing that this is a, you know, this is a pain point. We need to fix it now so it doesn't flower into. So, for example, making sure that people um, have what they need in shelter so they don't become 
institutionalized later on because they 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 sat in a situation where they didn't have air conditioning uh, for a long time and and their bodies couldn't regulate heat, so they incurred additional you know a, a additional disability. Um, so having an understanding from that from that perspective that there's a journey, there's a, there's a, an actual journey that people go on, and it starts well before the disaster happens. It actually starts the moment they understand that I could be in a disaster. So what does that look like? That part of the disaster life cycle should be a lot longer than any other point. That preparation point, that engagement, that inclusion, that should be a lot longer. So our goal over the next 100 days uh, is to make that case that we actually save ourselves and relieve the system by tackling these, these things proactively rather than waiting for them to happen. And by the way, it may not be, you know, explicitly stated in our mission statement, but we do have an interest in it. We do we do take an interest in these things because it's part of our job of being prepared and making sure that we're more resilient um, and mitigating um, um, the the effects of a of a disaster. So you, you're going to hear a lot about the survivor journey map and and the business case for equity over the next 100 days. Thanks for listening to this episode of Before, During, and After, a podcast from FEMA. If you'd like to learn more about this episode or other topics, or have ideas for future episodes, visit us at fema.gov podcast. Thank you.